Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Welcome listeners to another episode and thanks very much for tuning in. Each year more than 3,000 Australians end their lives. This is about 8 people a day. To to prevent suicide and reduce these numbers, it is important to make sure all Australians get the support they need when they need it. One professional passionate about making a change is Mr. Alan Woodward. Alan has worked in the fields of mental health, crisis support and suicide prevention for 20 years as an executive leader service and program developer, evaluator and researcher, and expert advisor to governments and peak bodies. As a board director for nine years, and more recently as a a strategic advisor on quality and innovation with Suicide Prevention Australia, Alan has significantly contributed to the National Suicide Prevention Policy. Alan worked for Lifeline Australia in various executive roles for 14 years until 2018, including the Lifeline Research Foundation. He is a fellow of the Australian Evaluation Society and holds a master's degree in social science and policy, a business degree in public administration, and a diploma in arts communication. Tune in this week as Alan discusses his professional journey and key achievements, including the progress being made in suicide prevention and the proactive steps we can take to support both patients and carers. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Alan Woodward. Thanks very much for joining us today, Alan. Thank you, Sam. It's my pleasure to be with you. No, thanks very much for coming on board, and uh, and we're really interested in getting into a conversation with you about all the things you've been up to uh, in your career so far, and obviously where things are heading. But if you just want to give us a little bit of background on how you got to where you are today professionally, how, what what made you get into this suicide space initially in the first place? Well, it's um. It's not something that occurred through any uh, real plan, in a sense, uh, but it was a convergence of the areas that I was working in and and, and and related to my passions. I guess also, to be honest, there's many people who work in this field. Um, I have had exposures to the loss of friends um, uh, and loved ones to suicide, and I've seen the impacts of suicide in the community, so it's something that I've, I've wanted to I feel I could do something about. But I started working in uh, the areas of uh, human services and social policy, uh, community uh, strengthening and engagement. Uh, I'd worked in government for a number of years, mostly in social policy or or reform areas. Um, And I uh, uh, ended up working for the organisation Lifeline. Uh, And uh, I was very pleased um, to do that. My first introduction to Lifeline was in my home region with the local Lifeline Centre and the manager asked me to, to help out with a couple of things initially on a voluntary basis and it just went from there and it ended up being 
uh, more than 15 years that I had with the organisation in voluntary and paid roles, and uh, I certainly learnt a lot from it. Where is home for you, Alan? Our home is Kaima uh, on the south coast of New oh, South Wales. Beautiful uh, spot. So, and this is my my home region. So I'm a, a Wollongong uh, bloke, uh, raised in Wollongong, and uh, I've been very fortunate um, to to be able to live most of my life and now live and work in my home region. Yeah, what a great area there on the south coast. There, uh, it's a beautiful spot. Do you, um, what sort of, actually I want to get into the four H's before we then go for a deeper dive into uh, your role with Lifeline. What What are some of your hobbies? What are, um, the first H is for hobbies, so what are some of the hobbies that you're, you're into? Well, I guess it's a hobby, but I really like uh, travel and I like going to different places and meeting, meeting people and enjoying you know, the culture and the different environments and the history of places. Uh, I've um pretty much all my life, been very fortunate to do a lot of travel and I was very lucky uh, because my parents were great travellers and at the age of 15 they bundled me and my younger brother up and we took six months travelling around the world as a family Uh, and I guess that (laughs) um, wet my appetite and I've always used every opportunity I can to, to travel whether it be in Australia or elsewhere. So that would, uh, I guess, be a hobby. Um, and I, 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 I like meeting people. You know, I, um, I've always found people to be interesting. I've, I've found people uh, that I can learn from, um, interesting people, and to understand some of the stories that people can tell is always a delight. And, uh, and I guess in that sense, I'm a person who is a hobby, you know, likes to... <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, engage with other people and uh, and and learn a bit from them. That makes sense. Uh, the second H is for heroes. Who are some heroes in your life that you feel have been quite influential in in playing a, a role in either your personal or professional life? Yeah, I've got a couple uh, that I'd mention. I mean, probably the first one I mentioned is Hugh Mackay, uh, who's a social researcher, and uh, I was first exposed to some of Hugh's work. When I first left school and was studying communications and journalism uh, out of Bathurst, and Hugh had actually set up um, a communication centre in the Central West, although he wasn't part of the uh, the college now university. But we uh, uh, had heard from Hugh and his broadcast activities and so on, and I was fascinated with his desire to well, do one of the things I mentioned I like doing, you know, meeting people, talking with them and, and learning from them. But he used rigorous social research methods to do that and to draw out um, the things that he he heard and saw. Uh, I've always found Hugh to be an incredibly insightful commentator on Australian society. And uh, my orientation is more around the issues of social policy and, if you like, making the world a better place. So I've found Hugh's work to be intriguing and helpful. And it's been right throughout my life. You know, he's continued to write books, which I've enjoyed reading. I've heard him speak a couple of times. And maybe one of the things I really admire about uh, Hugh Mackay is he doesn't step back from telling it how he sees it. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes he has had messages to the Australian population that are a bit uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, you know, that maybe. Some of the things that we have celebrated about ourselves, you know, a little bit thin. 
but he's also been generous enough to to show and to reinforce the strength of Australian society. And, uh, you know, I think that's been wonderful. So he, he'd certainly be one of my heroes. Wow. What a, yeah, what, what great insights into Hugh. Uh, and the, I mean, I haven't read the Mackay Report, but, I mean, it sounds like it's been something that's uh, well-read and quite renowned um, with his piece of work there. What's uh, what are the what's what's some highlights or what, what's a key highlight? What's something you've been most proud of to achieve in your life? Well, I I do think one of the things that I'm I'm most proud about, uh, and it's not that I necessarily did a whole lot, but I worked with so many wonderful people at Lifeline, mm. and the thing that I'm really proud about is that during the time I was there, Lifeline progressed to be a really strong uh, service for the community through the telephone helpline and now the chat and text services. And it became an organisation that was really um, innovative. Now, it it always had those bones in it. Um, But when I went to work for Lifeline in 2004 as a full-time employee, so I'd done work with them for a few years prior to that Mm -hmm. on an occasional basis, but in 2004, uh, there was a big problem with the telephone helpline in Australia because it simply wasn't answering the calls made to it. So it was a service that was recognised very much in the community that performed an important role, but it didn't have the capacity to do what it needed to do. And you know, to put it bluntly, there's not much point having a telephone crisis line that doesn't answer the call when no. people make it. No, uh, so one of the things that I did early on in my time with Lifeline is I came in as part of a team to overhaul the technology and the management of the service and the way that we utilise the network of the 40-plus Lifeline centres around the country, all of which are community-based, to create a, a virtual network that would really be able to pool the resource and start answering those calls. And lo and behold, Lifeline nowadays is answering more than a million calls a year, which means it's one of the highest volume telephone helplines in the world. Wow. It's recently been achieving call answer rates of in excess of 90%. That is, you know, almost all of the calls are answered when the person makes them. Um, and there's a quality in service. So, you know, I was part of a group of people who came together. We had wonderful leadership. We had... Uh, people within government who could see the vision and were supportive and progress funding. And the community got behind it and said, this is an Australian service we want. So, you know, I'm very proud of the time that I've had um, with Lifeline, uh, the wonderful people I've met. And, you know, now that the nation is, is really, you know, facing some big challenges with uh, the COVID pandemic, the, the the fires that we had over the summer, the economic and employment issues, all the modern challenges that we've got, I'm really convinced, you know, having a strong telephone and uh, online crisis support service is, is, you know, absolutely essential. And uh, I think a lot of people are, are benefiting from that. What a great response. Uh, and something, as you said, is something that would have been so amazing to be a part of and something obviously you're clearly quite proud and rightly so to be a, a key part of that uh the rollout there and and um as you said to be answering all those calls now 
uh, and also the importance of the online uh, is is really something that Lifeline is doing very, very well. And so back in 2004, um, that would have taken some some uh, initiative and some leadership to get in there and rustle the feathers and make it happen. So well done. Um, yeah, yeah. As we go to the it last... It wasn't always like, easy, I can say. <laughs> no, no. I, I, listen, I don't pretend um, that that would be the case. I'd love to delve into that as well a bit later on. Tell me about um, something... Uh, the fourth and last H is, is hardships. What's something that you've had to overcome, something you had to endure, anything in your personal, professional life that you, um, yeah, if there's any story you want to share with us or an event? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I've had some times in my life that it's been really difficult. Um, and, you know, I'm not unusual in that regard. Most people have yeah. patches in their life that are really difficult and some people have really long and continuing patches of difficulty. Um, but I, I certainly had uh, you know, a really difficult time in my mid-twenties, um, early to mid-twenties. And uh, yeah, it was like there was, a, there was actually a bit of a trifecta um, that hit me at one stage. Um, it, it started with my father um, passing away very suddenly one night. Uh, and um, that, that was a really big hit uh, for me, more than I... Um, expected, and when I look back on it, I, I kind of understand why. But it was uh, it was a really big thing personally, and it came so suddenly. Uh, shortly after that, um, uh, my marriage uh, broke, broke down, and uh, you know that was another really big issue because I had not actually been married very long, and I was still young. So you know, with that went a whole lot of, I guess, dreams. And expectations, uh, and um, the third thing that happened uh, around that time was uh, a job that I really loved doing. Um, uh, was uh, well, what do you say? You know, didn't continue, uh, so I, I lost the the job that I was enjoying doing, and that was a, a really difficult time. I, I found myself just not knowing what what next. Um, you know, the combination of things meant I wasn't really sure about my finances. Um, I knew that I'd have to leave uh, the house um, that I'd, I'd purchased with my wife. Um, didn't know where I was going to live. Uh, didn't know what the next job might be. And I was still you know, really dealing with the, the grief and loss from my father and still trying to work some of that through and, and understand things. And I was done in my mid-20s and, you know... Um, when I look back on it now, I think, you know, I really wasn't that mature. You know, I was still, still coming to grips with my place in the world, and yet I had these big, big issues. So, yeah. so you know, I, I guess a lot of people have those things, but that was a time in my life where I really felt um, the difficulties of, of, I guess, what, what life can throw at you. And now I'm looking back, and thanks for sharing that, by the way. And I you know it's put yourself in a vulnerable position to share some hardships in, in, in your life. Uh, Looking back on it, is that something that made you want to then uh, explore a bit further and, and did that get you into studying more about this and then following that path which eventually led to, you know, your role with Lifeline or was it? Hmm. I'm not sure it was, it was quite that easy or planned as, as yeah. I said before. It was more that I, I always knew I wanted to try and make the world a better place, that I, I, I love interacting with people 
um, and and communities. So you know, it sort of followed naturally. But interestingly, of all the things I did with Lifeline, uh, it was the voluntary role probably that was the closest fit to some of the things in my life experience. So when I decided to volunteer and go on the phones and, and answer those calls. Uh, one of the first things that we did in the training was um, a reflective exercise about our own life experience. Um, you know, so this is like fast forward 20 years mm. in my life. Um, and I had uh, reached the stage where I had done some reflection about what had happened in my early years and I'd learnt more about myself. And I really believe that it helped me enormously to train and equip myself to answer those calls. Um, because there's this, this, this uh, a truism that often the people who can be most helpful to you are the people who've gone there before. And in mental health and suicide prevention, uh, this is now increasingly recognised as we talk about the importance of the consumer and carer perspectives or the value of the lived experience insights and the peer worker models that are coming forward now. But to me, it comes back to that basic truism. That is one of the most helpful things that a person can do for another person is share from their own experiences because they truly understand and can relate to it. And uh, when you're struggling, Often it's the people who you can trust because they've been there before that you reach out to. Um, certainly when I was going through difficulties, I was struck by, I guess, some random people who came into my life and were enormous help to me, um, mainly because they had had enough similar experience so they could relate to what I was going through and were prepared to talk with me about it. And it gave me some confidence too, that I thought, well, if they've got through it, maybe I can too. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, it's important to take what life throws as you as experiences that you can learn from and grow. It's not much fun when you're in the midst of it often, um, but it is an opportunity. And I think you can do some good for others if you're willing to give a bit of yourself and your experiences. You you mentioned the peer workforce, consumer carer, uh, and lived experience, something that's you know really quite crucial, uh, especially in developing and shaping policy uh, today. And and their involvement in the sector is is something that is is growing, and rightly so. Uh, and uh, but if we just uh, and I'd love to touch more on that shortly, but. If we go back to, I mean, you started doing some work in the corruption prevention space. Is that correct? I did, yes. Um, I went to the Independent Commission Against Corruption um, fairly soon after the commission was established and I was the first manager of the education function. So the commission had three functions under its statute, investigation, uh, systems improvement uh, and education. So I was there to commence the education function. It was an absolute privilege. I still um, pinch myself to see, did that really happen? Did, did, uh, did I get that job? And, uh, you know, I got to work with, with people like uh, Ian Temby 
um, you know, and various others uh, at a time of incredible change and, and passion um, around corruption prevention. What sort of time frame was this, Alan? When, when was that? It was, uh, let's see, I think it was 1990 I commenced with the commission. I was there for three years. And how did that teach you, or, or what was the link between that and suicide prevention? Yeah, I've often um, quipped to people that I, I learned everything I needed to know about suicide prevention by doing corruption prevention, um, which is only, you know, half true, of course. But yeah. there were some things that I learned. Um, firstly, uh, corruption is a behaviour, ultimately, um, as suicide is a behaviour. Sometimes misunderstood to be an illness or a condition, but uh, suicide is a behaviour. Um, both corruption and suicide might be fueled by underlying conditions and illness. That's for sure. Um, and people make you know distorted choices or or, or read situations in, in different ways. Um, but that's 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 one of the key things. That's the same between the two. And they're both very complicated behaviours. They're not things that you can just moderate or address in a simple way or one one size fits all approach or a thing, single factor and then, then you've dealt with it. Um, like most uh, human behaviours, we're, we're complicated beings, but, but suicide and, uh, and corrupt behaviours are, are things that have multiple factors feeding into them. And they're not just about the individual. Uh, they're also about the society and the attitudes and norms that we have around our society. So in the same way that, you know, with uh, corrupt behaviour, um, often behaviours line up against what we perceive our peers to accept as okay. Um, and that can be an issue around, you know, people undertaking corrupt acts. If they think that those around them think it's okay, well, you know, that, that's what uh, they, they will go ahead with. Um, with suicide, it's a little bit different, uh, but we have social factors, uh, such as um, the way in which the media portrays suicide, or the way in which some of the community leaders talk about suicide. And you know, there's pretty good research evidence to show that if we glorify suicide or make glorification of uh, those who died by suicide, we are likely to have copycat behaviours. Mm. So, you know, those are some of the, the uh, I guess, parallels that I saw between the two. And in both areas, the work is about looking to, to achieve prevention, improvement uh, for the good of everyone. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things that could be, you know, taken across the two fields of, of work. It's really interesting. And so from there, did you then go into Lifeline? Is that is that where you then um, started your journey of your 14-year career with Lifeline? No, there was a big gap. There was a big gap. And uh, I, uh, I I was actually a, um, a New South Wales public servant who was seconded to the ICAC. And uh, when I finished the three years there, I went and did another secondment out of the public service with the Institute um, for Public Administration, where I worked uh, to develop a uh, charter of public service ethics and a training program around ethics. So I stayed working in the area of, I guess, if you like, probity and corruption prevention and ethics for four years all up. Um, and that was a very interesting um, period. Uh, but I then went into management review and management improvement 
in the central part of, of government, um, which was called the Office of Public Management in those days. And uh, we were there to lead and um, enable public sector management reform in New South Wales. Uh, and I loved it uh, because it was about making change and improvement. Um, there was a whole uh, verve and vigour about the direction for improvement. Um, and you know, I was there in the action. Again, I just felt terribly privileged um, to be there as part of it all. And in that um, time, I started to become very interested in the uses of evaluation and quality improvement to achieve change. Uh, and those have stayed with me right throughout. I, I remain passionately interested in using evaluation techniques to generate knowledge and understanding and to apply that. Uh, and uh, in my later career, I got very involved in the Evaluation Society. I became president of the Australian Evaluation Society um, and I'm now a fellow of that society. So I have maintained my interest because I think the idea of creating knowledge and evaluation is a sort of multidisciplinary way of using tools and techniques and theories to systematically, rigorously and informatively create knowledge. Knowledge is power because uh, you can make improvements then based on your knowledge and understanding. You can make better decisions. And the quality improvement thing to me is aligned because it's more of that continuous process. Mm. So I really enjoyed my time in central government uh, and, and learning all that. In the end, I left the public service um, and went and worked in private consulting for a number of years. And my private consulting was also focused around improvement, helping organisations, but also around community engagement. And the idea that you could not only generate knowledge, but you could do that with people in participative and collaborative ways. The company that I worked for specialised in participation and collaboration methods. Uh, and we brought out to Australia some international training programs in um, participation under the International Association for Public Participation. Um, and I did a lot of uh, work with um, communities as well around how you could uh, set directions and plan and solve problems. And that, I guess, has been one of my other passions because I, I truly believe that if you can bring people to work together, you will get better results. Partly because you get buying, but also because you get the value of different perspectives. Mm. And you get a better solution to a problem, you get a better plan of action, you get a better approach if you take into account a variety of perspectives than if it's one or two perspectives dominating. So the movement into Lifeline, frankly, was more a progression of a range of things and it gave me some skills that I think I could help them with. And you mentioned the the, the major change with the the, you know the telephone side of things as as a significant achievement and right you know and I couldn't agree more I don't think anyone would uh, disagree with that it, what other what were some other major changes or highlights or challenges you had to overcome working with lifeline for 14 years well one of the big challenges for lifeline was 
the shape and, and nature of the organisation, which I hasten to say, I think is one of its strengths. But it's not a single corporate entity. It's a, a member organisation, now a company limited by guarantee and a national charity. Um, but it's, it's made up of a whole lot of other organisations that came together to create a network. So it was classic grassroots uh, movement up in the 60s and 70s. Um, and then a national organisation uh, was created as an umbrella. But that does create you know, some issues around governance and decision making. And when it came to the issue of how do you solve the uh, operation of the telephone helpline, it meant bringing, well, 50 or 60 locations from which a service was operating locally into a linked up service using technology that would be managed and operate nationally while at the same time keeping the community-based services that those lifeline centres were running in their communities and not um, undermining that. In fact, if anything, wanting to complement that. Mm. When I got to Lifeline in 2004, it became apparent that one of the first things that needed to be done was to work out how the organisation would work together to address this problem. And that's where some of the things that I learned around participative techniques and the ways to engage and collaborate with others, I think became so important. And as I mentioned, I was one of many people working in Lifeline at that stage. But I ended up being the company secretary and taking on part of the uh, leadership of the governance reform, as well as the issues around service practices and, and other things. And we got there. We overhauled the governance arrangements to create um, a mutual arrangement where there would be areas of shared responsibility, common purpose, and clearly defined roles and responsibilities within an overarching arrangement. And now that's what got us through because there was always a chance that it wasn't going to stick together, that there wouldn't be enough agreement uh, and that the cohesion required to really drive the service improvements might not stand up. Um, you know, somebody once quipped that working for Lifeline was a bit like working for the United Nations because there's so many different perspectives. Oh, well, wow. of course there were, because all the members and all the staff and volunteers were based in communities. And one thing about Australia that I've learnt is that it is not actually all the same. Yeah. In fact, Australia is probably about 70 distinct regions and there are communities within that. So part of the challenge of doing anything in Australia, as anywhere else in the world, is finding the way to work with other people, understand where they're coming from, create the shared purpose, and then you can work together. Mm. That's really interesting. And you mentioned before, and this is something I know that you are very strong about, is the power of that knowledge trans, uh, translation into uh, or, or for it to inform strategy. And I think you mentioned at Lifeline and Suicide Prevention Australia, there's uh, you know two very uh, amazing things, I guess, that have really shown that, which is that research side, Lifeline Research Foundation and the National Suicide Prevention Research Fund. 
Tell us a bit about that and um, the importance of that knowledge translation uh, and really shaping strategy. Well, I guess the, uh, the the first point really to make is that we are all aided by access to to high quality knowledge, yeah. and research is is a very good way to get that knowledge. Uh, what is often a challenge, however, is for the uh, research results, the findings, the knowledge uh, coming through to the people who can apply it for policy improvement or service development or, or, or for planning and, and community action. So in Lifeline situation, uh, back in 2011, established the Lifeline Research Foundation with the idea that embedded into the structure of the national organisation would be this unit that could harness relevant research knowledge relating to suicide prevention, mental health, crisis and crisis responses, the areas Lifeline needed to know about. But also to engage with the wider organisation and bring out from within the organisation know-how through innovation and trials so that that could be turned into research findings that could be used. And it also meant establishing a unit that would essentially sit there as a bit of a provocateur in the structure of the organisation and put out knowledge and be available to answer questions and sometimes to make comment and point to what the research evidence might show. It was something that I believe was really important to Lifeline. And I have to say that many other people rapidly grasped the importance of having that foundation internally. It also provided the basis for partnerships uh, to be formed with the research community. Uh, and, you know, over the time that I was with Lifeline, there was about $750,000 in grants and private funding attracted to the foundation for research-based work, including innovation trials. And at the time I left, um, a couple of years ago, two large NHMRC partnership grants with Lifeline as a partner, with more than $2 million of uh, NHMRC money going into large research programs. So I think it's um, quite interesting to see how a charity can itself use knowledge and find knowledge that it can apply through a structural unit like a foundation. Uh, one of the key principles that always operated was that not one dollar of service money would go to the Lifeline Research Foundation. And I think that was a really sound principle. Um, that is, no, there was no way that the Research Foundation's budget would be supplemented by money that was intended for the delivery of service. So it had to stand on its own two feet and find access to research grants and private donors for research purposes, and it, and it did. Um, 
in Suicide Prevention Australia, the establishment of a national research fund for suicide prevention was a similar uh, uh, exercise in that the idea was that we had a lot of knowledge on suicide prevention available in this country and internationally. Australia um, really has got some of the best researchers in suicide prevention in the world. We've had uh, a president of the International Association, um, our secretary and deputy president. We've had many um, people recognised for their work um, in the field of suicide prevention. But the translation of that knowledge for people delivering services and programs and acting in communities has not always been an easy thing. Uh, sometimes it's because you know, the different languages are spoken. It's almost like translating or, you know, what the researcher means when they speak like that and <laughs> what the community asks for when they say that. Yeah. Um, but, but also it's about having a mechanism through which knowledge can be made available and explained. So that was the idea for the National Suicide Prevention Research Fund, and it's been going out for several years, and there's been dozens of research grants given, many of which would not have been funded through conventional ways. So it's added something. And it's become now better known as a source of insight and will continue to be so. So I've I've always supported those, those two things. The one in Lifeline, I guess, is one I was more personally involved in. Yeah. But my time with SPA as a board director, I was a strong advocate for the research fund coming that way. And at the end of the day, it's simply about knowledge is good, knowledge is power, but knowledge shared is very important. Yeah, and, and the interpretation of the knowledge, uh, because most people want to understand, okay, now we've got the data, how do we interpret yeah. that in order to make or to draw some meaningful conclusions with which we can then take away and apply to create change? Yes, I think there's um, you know, some value in having people that can explain uh, data, statistics, findings from research. Uh, uh, I guess at one level, you know, everyone should be able to access a, a publication or a statistics report um, but you know some of it's a bit complicated and there are some nuances and some background knowledge that's required to best understand things and the area of suicide prevention particularly but also in, in mental health issues um, so yeah I think there is a legitimate uh, role for some to be the knowledge translators and they need to work to build a bridge between the knowledge creators and the knowledge users. If we if we go to, uh, and I know Suicide Prevention Australia has been big on this, but I mean, we're seeing a rise now in the in the peer workforce and the importance of that, uh, the mm -hmm. consumer care model and lived experience and the role in them and helping, uh, you know, and having their voice at the table. Um, Tell us about where you see uh, how how you see that happening at the moment, and where you see it going in the future. Well, I think it's uh, one of the most significant changes 
uh, that has occurred in recent times and I think it will continue. And I think there's a sort of basic um, point here. Uh, when it comes to the provision of uh, programs and services and community responses to mental health issues and suicide prevention, it's really important to have the insights from the people who've been there because those insights will help us all understand what is going to work and why, what doesn't help and maybe we should avoid doing, and because it addresses a basic power differential in these areas, which if allowed to go unrestrained, will be a barrier to people reaching out and getting support. So maybe to explain what I, I mean there. In both the areas of mental health and suicide prevention, the provision of services, whether they be professional or non-professional, and the engagement process with people does not just automatically happen. Mm. There needs to be features like trust in the relationships that are helping, like openness and a shared understanding of the issue. Uh, it's not a simple transactional service arrangement. And therefore, the services that are provided need to draw on what the professional bodies or the service organisations can do and can offer, but it also needs to be informed by the people who use those services and receive those programs so they do hit the mark in terms of being trustful and relevant and useful. Otherwise, we can spend an awful lot of effort doing things that are not that helpful to the people we're trying to serve and support. So to me, that's the, the sort of basic point, and that's why increasingly there's attention to lived experience perspectives, consumer and carer advocacy. And it's occurred over some time, more than 10 years, more, more than that in, in Australia, and it's still got some way to go. And I do think it's been quite interesting to see how much advocacy has been needed to achieve those changes at times. Now, we were talking about heroes before. Well, one of my heroes is Janet Ma, mm. who I was very fortunate to meet shortly after I went to work for Lifeline. And Janet has been a, an advocate around mental health improvements and reform and basically the human rights of people uh, undergoing care and treatment. Uh, extraordinary person with strength and experience to, to draw on. And you wonder why it just took so long because on the face of it, it seems like a natural thing that any service would want to be sure that it's relevant and helpful to the people it's being offered to. But there is this issue around the vulnerability of those who need mental health care and support 
and responses around their suicidality and the environment in which that operates. So, you know, for me, it's a really important uh, shift that we're seeing and uh, I think it will still continue to develop. And Alan, I know in a in a presentation recently, uh, you told us of some t- statistics uh, around you know people. Uh, so I think one was U.S. research found that forty five percent of people who had died by suicide uh, visited primary health care, uh, and another nineteen percent of that nineteen percent actually visited a mental health prof- a professional within thirty days of taking their own life. Um, you then also mentioned Australia, uh, over 50% who attempted uh, suicide had contact with a healthcare professional uh, and 57% did not tell health uh, their healthcare professional uh, of their suicide ideation prior to the attempt. And further than that, 44% would not tell health, a healthcare professional in future. Is that where yeah. you see this filling that gap? Is that where you've, you know, that f- forming that relationship, that trust to assist in in bridging that gap, do you think? Uh, I think it is about bridging that gap. Uh, maybe also useful to try and unpack it a bit too, because the, those statistics do illustrate a couple of things. I mean, they do illustrate, for example, that many people do engage with um, professional services in the service system, whether it be primary health care through a GP or through a more specialist service. Um, but it also shows that people may be reticent to engage. And this is where some of the things around what we tend to call stigma um, apply. And stigma can be a bit multi-layered. It can be in part what um, the wider community's attitude is and it can be in part what we internalise as our own views. So, you know, for instance, on the issues around seeking help to do with anxiety and depression, which are, you know, I guess more prevalent mental health issues in our wider community, and yet many people who experience those conditions at points in their life do not reach out and get um, uh, services or treatments or programs, and yet there are many very good treatments and programs and people can recover from the symptoms and the conditions around anxiety and depression. So you say, well, why, why is this? Well, perhaps it's in part because of how, as a wider community, we view those conditions and mental health broadly. And we've come a long way in Australia. It's a more open discussion now than it was 20 years ago, certainly a far more open conversation than it was when I was a kid growing up in Wollongong. Um, but there's still a notion that, you know, people might be reluctant um, and some of that's reinforced sometimes. You know, we still get occasionally somebody in the, the public domain saying something that just reinforces the stigma you know, or stereotypes people with mental health issues. Um, in a negative way. Um, and part of it too is about how we, we view it ourselves. You know, are we, we really comfortable ourselves to go through what that might involve to say, I need help on this, this issue. Um, maybe it's also about whether we perceive there's some risk to ourselves in terms of maybe it affects our job opportunities. Um, 
or or how people around us will think of it. Um, and certainly, those who are immediate around us will influence that, our thinking very much. You know, sort of back to what I was saying before around uh, the relationship between corruption prevention and suicide prevention and mental health. You know, the attitudes of the people in our immediate social circle can be very powerful in framing what we think and do. Um, so I think think we've got some way to go in the, the stigma issue. Yeah. But the other issue that has emerged in those research findings is that sometimes when people engage in the services, they don't get a service that's appropriate to their need and sometimes they get a unsatisfactory service experience. And, um, you know, that's where, particularly in the case of those people who were surveyed about their uh, service use during suicidal crisis, that research study, which was done through the Black Dog Institute for the National Mental Health Commission a couple of years ago, showed that one of the factors was that people felt the services were not engaging enough around their emotional distress. Mm. Yeah, they provided a good clinical response or a good medical response, but they were cold, functional, mechanistic in the way the service was provided, and they left the person feeling uncared for that becomes a barrier to seeking services next time around. Do you also think it was a part of, you know, about having to tell their whole story several times as well? Like, do you think it's partly a process um, issue as well? Yeah. It can be, yeah, yeah. because uh, it becomes a big issue where there are a few different services involved. And I, I think many of us have... Uh, um, heard uh, advocates talk about this issue of having to tell your story over and over again and uh, those of us that have been involved in seeking help ourselves have sometimes found that frustration. Uh, it typically occurs where there are a couple of services that need to come together and uh, a person finds themselves having to talk to you know, person A, tell the story, then they're referred off to person B for a slightly different uh, service they have to go through the story again, that person C, and, it, and it's incredibly frustrating, but it's also potentially damaging for a person to have to run through some of the real difficulties they're experiencing and verbalise that to a person they've only just met. It's confronting. Yeah. Um, so where we can try and bring the services together, that's a really important area around mental health reforms and reforms around suicide prevention. So the person is aided rather than having themselves to walk the, you know, the line and, and uh, you know, tell each person the, you know, the same information time over. Maybe technology can help with that. There are some technology platforms being developed that, that provide for that. Maybe it's also about breaking down some of the barriers between different service areas and getting a more multidisciplinary approach or a more joined-up approach um, yeah, I think it'll come. I think these are things that many people are working on and there are some, some interesting um, designs and models now. But it absolutely is, is a priority for service improvement. Mm. It's very complex, but uh, like you said, there's very uh, there's a lot of moving parts and hopefully we're, we're heading towards getting uh, that more more right uh, or, prog or progress anyway and advancements than, than going backwards. But tell us about the role that you're playing with the National Mental Health Commission uh, as it stands and what that involves. 
Okay. So I'm, um, well, I guess, a, a, a commissioner with the National Mental Health Commission. Uh, it's a part-time role and it's um, an appointment as uh, part of an advisory board to the commission. Uh, so it means that I, I can um, contribute to the work of the commission uh, by offering any insights or advice that I may have. Um, and sometimes I'm asked specifically uh, to comment on particular aspects of the commission's work. It's a, it's a wonderful um, opportunity and privilege um, because the Commission is doing some amazing things uh, nationally and also working closely with um, state and territory commissions and similar bodies. Uh, so there is, uh, I guess, you know, something of a, a network around the country of people that are looking to improve in areas of mental health and suicide prevention. And um, the role I have with the National Commission is to is to provide some advice and, and uh, assist us work in that way. And, and are you seeing, uh, I mean, I know they've been very engaging in all levels. I mean, are you seeing that, you know, a culmination of your uh, experience over your, your professional life, you're seeing this sort of playing out in, in the process of how they're going about, um, you know, improving and creating the suicide prevention policy? Yeah, I do. Um, and... Now, I think the firstly the, the establishment of the National Mental Health Commission now some years ago uh, I think was a um, a wonderful thing um, and it showed some real uh, leadership um, by the government at that stage and the government since then has continued to support it. It's it's an important part of the architecture, if you like, because it doesn't have a service provision function. It's not concerned with Know, operating services and funding services, it's able to look from afar and also bring together um, knowledge um, uh, and expertise and to offer ideas around how improvements can occur. So in that sense, it's trying to solve problems. Mm. But I think the thing that I would say about the National Mental Health Commission that I think really does... Um, uh, send its, its work in, in good good regard for many people is that it has been accessible to people and communities. Uh, so in the last 12 months, um, there was a lot of work done around the so-called Connect Tours um, where you know, dozens of communities uh, were visited. Um, many, many people provided uh, comment in those community meetings or through um, online uh, way and that has informed the directions now going into what will be a vision um, for the next 10 years in mental health and suicide prevention systematic reform and improvement. Now a commission is well placed therefore to listen to what the people of Australia are saying they need and to translate that into proposals for improvement, uh, drawing on its access to knowledge and expertise. So it's a bit like some of the other things that we've spoken about today. It plays to a lot of my, my passions um, in that our starting point is that we think things could be better. So then the question is more about in what ways could it be better and how do we get there? 
and we must get there by engaging with people from a variety of backgrounds, including those who are most vulnerable, and making sure that we set directions that are going to work practically for people. So, you know, for example, the Commission's doing a lot of work around workplaces and mental health promotion in workplaces, working with uh, an alliance uh, that was already operating and uh, building and strengthening that. And that will make a practical difference for many people because work is a huge part of many people's lives. So if we can strengthen the way in which mental health is positively promoted in the workplace, that's a good thing. And if we can ensure that where people experiencing mental health issues receive appropriate and effective responses in the workplace, that also is a good thing. So I think, you know, for me, mm. I'm delighted to contribute where I can because it's trying to make a difference in the lives of people. Yes. What do you think in, in, in regards to suicide prevention, what are, what do you think's working really well so far? Um, about what we've what we've done over the past few years, about where we're heading. What what are you excited about, and what do you feel like is really starting to get some traction? Yeah, you know, it's a difficult question to answer because you cannot answer that question without having very much sitting almost like a knot in your stomach. The reality that we are presently losing three thousand plus Australians to suicide each year. And we have maybe eighty to a hundred thousand estimated people who attempt to end their lives each year. So it's a bit hard to talk about you know, what's what's working well without immediately reflecting that the cause is really important. Yeah. We're really not content with where we're at on that, and those are lives lost, tragedies they impact on thousands, millions of Australians. Having said that, there are things in Australia that I think we are doing well and we can take encouragement on. We do, for example, have a lot of very good services and programs relating to suicide prevention available in many, if not all, communities. Some of them are remarkably innovative by any stretch. Um, while I was with Lifeline, we were testing and developing a support group for people who had attempted to end their life, drawing on uh, a model of service that had been trialled and tested in the US and seeing if we could make it work in Australia. You know, and that's very innovative. Not easy, but it's innovative and it's trying to do something and is having pleasing results from participants. Uh, we do have um, many very good professional and health services available. We sometimes have issues around the access everyone has to them and the way in which they relate to suicide prevention, but compared to other countries, we have a very good health system. We do have many people in communities who are strongly committed to the cause of suicide prevention and are influencing on a day-in, day-out basis the 
people in their local communities. And in that sense, they are making a difference. We also have got at a policy level a commitment from all governments, national and state and territory, to doing better in suicide prevention. It's been elevated through the National Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Plan as a discrete priority area with actions to be taken. And we presently have a national task force um, prompted by the Prime Minister uh, to look at a whole of government approach to suicide prevention. So we have got a lot of things that have you know, taken real constructive steps uh, to address this issue. And I think by and large, we have got um, a society like it has looked at other things when Australia's had, had issues to look at. By and large, Australians say we are up for bringing about change and improvement. And I think that's a really good attitude that we have in our society. I will keep going and I believe we will make a difference. Alan, as we look to the future, what what do you uh, what do you think is um, some big challenges that we will, will still face, or that we will still need to overcome, or or what are some things that you think uh, that you think will will change for the better in order to help reduce the number of suicides uh, each year? Well, I think there are probably a couple of things. I mean, if I can put on my more, I guess, um, research hat for a moment, I'd say look, we're getting better on the data side of things and that will give us uh, better ability to watch uh, the suicidal behaviour to see if we can be quicker off the mark to respond where a, a locality or a group of people um, uh, need more support. I think that the whole data side of things is on the way up in terms of the quality and the scope of data, and that's going to be um, really good resource for the country. I think we're also um, there in terms of the contemporary way of looking at suicide prevention, particularly through more attention to multifactoral or whole-of-government approaches, seeing that there are some health and mental health issues to be addressed but there are also things around you know, people's social service needs, such as housing and income support and employment, and where people have uh, difficult transition points in their life, you know, relationship breakdowns, loss of job, um, experiences in life where they need extra support. So I think we're becoming, in a sense, you know, far more um, sophisticated in how we are going to organise for suicide prevention. And I think the other thing that uh, we have as a real strength is that we are becoming as a society, maybe even rediscovering as a society, the importance of looking out for each other. Maybe during the time of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic response, that's pushed us all a little bit to think more about those around us and the relationships we have with people and their importance. Um, I've seen in my home region uh, wonderful examples of kindness and very local, organic type 
actions that people take, you know, to reach out to others, check in with others. Um, some of that can be built more structurally into services and organisations, but I think uh, Australia has a long tradition of looking out for each other. And Australia at its best is a country that places that as a high value and makes it happen. And that is going to have an impact on suicide prevention and our broader mental health and well-being, because all of us in some way need to feel that we belong with others, that we're accepted for who we are with others, and that others will be there to help if we need them. All of us, to some extent, need that. And that, I think, is one of the strengths in our society. Alan, you can clearly tell that you have a passion for people uh, and caring uh, about people. And, and obviously, that's at the heart of everything that you're doing. What does the future hold for you? Uh, I mean, are you, are you going to be adding to your 20-plus years experience in suicide prevention and crisis support? or are you? Uh, what's next for you and, and what's coming up? Well, there will be a couple of things. I've got some of my own research interests that I want to tie off and, uh, and complete. Um, and I'm very happy to continue to contribute in ways I can. I've been uh, fortunate also to now support an organisation as a board director operating in my region, um, providing services and uh, I also have a number of interests in my wider community. Uh, I'm not really a person who likes to just sit back and do nothing. So <laughs> I think there will be always a lot of activity for me to, to undertake and indeed more people to meet and, and um, experiences to share. I'm not um, one at this stage for a big, big plan. So I haven't got a sort of you know set goal to answer your question with Sam other than to say I really do enjoy the privilege of working with other people and uh, I've been lucky to work with the most amazing people during my working life and in other ways um, and I think uh, that's going to be the thing that I'll continue to look for uh, and working with people with common purpose and a common outlook is always something that uh, I'll look for. And, um, you know, together we can, can change the world. Well, Alan, I mean, you've certainly been a leader, uh, you know, for, in what you've been doing in this space for the, for the last 20-odd years and, and the changes that you've uh, helped uh, affect uh, and that you continue help to contribute towards. Um is really something that's uh, inspirational. So uh, we thank you for your time uh, and we appreciate uh, the input and sharing your story with our listeners uh, and wish you all the best for the future. Is there anything you want to say in closing, Alan? It's been my pleasure, Sam. Thank you for the opportunity. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership 
at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.